Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Well, good morning, everyone. I am Robert Kelly. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are so glad that you've come on out to join us for our first Holy Communion Sunday. And uh, we know we have lots of uh, guests with us today, a lot of friends and family, and uh, we just wanted to extend a special welcome to you. We're so glad you're here and participating in this. I'm sure the families and the kids are super excited about that. Uh, So thank you for that, and we hope that you do have a, a genuinely meaningful morning. If you could open up in a Bible, please, to Joshua chapter 24, we're starting in verse 14, Joshua 24, 14. Bibles are spread out in the seats around you, so they're the brown books that you can see underneath the chairs. Go ahead and grab one of those. It'll be more helpful for you if you're able to keep it open and follow along with us as we work our way through the text. Uh, The Bible, you see, contains all of these amazing narratives that have been handed down to us uh, through the generations designed to teach us about God and ourselves. And so at every opportunity at Beacon, we try to spend a little bit of time in God's word, trying to understand more about God and our relationship with him and each other. And so uh, that's what we're going to do here this morning. We are this afternoon. Also, it's what our kids do on Sunday mornings in Kids Quest. It's what the youth do in, in our Fusion Student Ministries on Sunday nights. We do it in our growth groups. We focus things on the Word of God because it helps us to understand God and ourselves more fully. The Old Testament, that's the part of the Bible we're reading. It's the first half of the Bible, and it was uh, originally written in Hebrew. The second half, the New Testament, uh, that was originally written in Greek, and those are combined now and translated uh, for us so that we don't have to learn Hebrew and Greek and so that we can read it in English. Joshua 24, starting in verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, and that's key, seems undesirable, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. This text helps us to answer a really important question. And it's a question about life. What's the purpose of life? Why are we here? This is a question that at some point in our lives, everyone will at least flirt with. As long as we don't keep ourselves too manically busy, this question begins to to intrude into our thinking, especially during midlife. 
and of course, later on in life, as we're getting toward the end of our days here on earth, we start to ask, what was it all about? What is it all about? What are we supposed to be doing while we're here? Now, lots of people wonder about life, which is why you can go out on the internet and find all sorts of great little quips about life. And so this is wisdom about life from the internet. Ready? Here's a couple of them. There is no life without water. Because without water, there is no coffee. And without coffee, I'm going to kill you. Or this one, life is too short to be serious all the time. So if you can't laugh at yourself, call me and I'll laugh at you. <laughs> How about that? This is a great one. If I'm ever on life support, unplug me. Then plug me back in and see if that works. <laughs> and then one of my, uh, one of my uh, most disconcerting ones, it is not the pace of life that concerns me. It's that sudden stop at the end. <laughs> it is the sudden stop at the end. And the book of Joshua talks about that sudden stop. It's the stop in the promised land. That's where this whole narrative is building. It's toward the promised land. Because you think about the Bible story, and what we find out is that God created humanity, and he gave us this spect spectacular home. That's what the Bible is all about. So if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you see this whole picture. God created the cosmos and the planet, and in the planet, he created a, this little garden, and the garden was perfectly suited for us to dwell with God and with each other in perfect peace. That was the plan, that God had created this place, and it was called Eden. And it was, in that day, the promised land, so that we could live in harmony with our God and with each other. This, this Jewish idea of shalom, peace, harmony, wholeness, health, that's what we had. And that happens in humanity whenever God is at the center of our existence. And it can't happen when God is not at the center of our existence. We actually even see that in our text. Go back to that first verse we were looking at. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Fear the Lord. Now, when we think in terms of fear, for a lot of us, it has to do with that idea of kind of trembling in a corner. You know, like a, like a terrified child would do. They, they'd be, you know, sh they'd be scared in the corner because their parents are arguing or they're yelling at them or something. Or how like a dog might be during a thunderstorm or the 4th of July. You know, they kind of go, they, they, they cower in a corner, right? And they, they're, they're just terrified. And so they, they fear and they, they shake. And, and I think many of us, we have this idea that that's kind of how we relate to God. I know it was for me growing up. I was part of a religious tradition where that's what we played upon was the fear, this, this terror of God. I mean, even his son was shown constantly all contorted and broken and in misery. Now, that was the main picture we would have of him, and so, of course, we should be scared. And if you messed up and if you did something wrong, then you should certainly be scared because the wrath of God was going to come crushing down upon your head, and because of that, you know, God, you knew that God's finger was always on that smite button, like, pop, smite, because that's what he does. He's the smiter God. And so we have this idea of the fear of God, but, but it's actually not. The, it, in, the, in the Hebrew mindset, this, this, this idea of the fear of God is a very rich theological construct. 
and it's helpful. What, what I found helpful in, in sort of uh, understanding this, this idea is to link it to the idea of a phobia, of a phobia. Now, think about, like, some of you have phobias. I mean, lots of people have phobias. And, you know, I don't know what your phobia is. Maybe it's spiders, right? Arachnophobia. You know, or maybe you're scared of, like, you know, heights or, you know, you're scared of, like, little white rabbits or something weird about like that. Like, I don't know. There's, like, the phobias are really kind of hard to even explain, right? You just have these, these inexplicable, over-exaggerated sort of fears. And when you have a phobic moment, everything else in that world kind of fades into the background. Everything else gets blurry. If you have a phobia, you know what I'm saying. Because if in the presence of a spider, all of life now gets defined in relation to the object of your phobia. And so where you will go in the room and how you will think and what you will do and what you won't do until the, the, the spider is dealt with appropriately by someone else, you know, it's all, this is what happens, right? And I, uh, some people think, are you, are you, you talk about spiders, are you scared? Oh, anyway, the, the, I'm not going to tell you that. But the... <laughs> But you see, you know what it's like because that's the phobic moment, right? You have this kind of thing. Now, that's the negative side. But it's the, the picture of it is key to understanding it because it captures the fullness of your attention such that the only thing that is crystal clear is the object of your phobia. And everything else begins to fade into the background. Everything else gets just a little blurry because you're focusing on the one thing. Now flip that same kind of energy into a much more positive realm. So think of it like, say, an artist, right? You're, uh, let's say you're, you're involved in the composing of an amazing uh, piece of, of music, or you're caught up in the playing of, or in the production, this, or, or, in, or, or, or even uh, maybe it's, you, it's your creation or it's the other, another person's creation, but it doesn't actually matter what it is, but you're caught up in that moment. And in that moment, when you're experiencing that beauty and that art, everything else sort of fades away. You're consumed. You're standing before a fantastic, a beautiful, an epic piece of art, and you're in the museum, and all of a sudden, in that moment, something is going on, and you're just absorbed into that moment so fully and completely that, that all of, everything else, the sounds and the smells and the people and the hustle and the bustle, it begins to fade around you because you're, you're, you're caught up in the rapture of that moment. The early days when you're with your lover and you're, you know, you're just kind of figuring each other out and you're, you're having dinner and you're walking along the, the beach, the boardwalk, you're holding hands, whatever it might be, that beautiful dinner, you're caught up in that moment. And it doesn't matter what's happening all around you. People could be talking and saying, and none of that matters. What matters is that moment. You're, you're caught up in the rapture of that moment because all you see is the object of your affection. When the scriptures use the fear of God, often use it inter they often use it interchangeably with words like love and adoration. That is the, the Hebrew model. That's the idea, is that God would become so much the center of your existence that when you focus on him, everything else begins to fade away. And every other interaction and relationship happens through the filter of your primary relationship which is God. That's the message of the whole of the scriptures. The greatest commandment in all of the Bible, right? You can tell it, say it in your own head, what you think the greatest commandment is. And some of you know it, and others are going to say something like, well, don't kill, don't commit adultery. But the greatest commandment in all of the scriptures is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's Old Testament and it's New Testament. It's found on all of the pages. Love the Lord your God. You see, it's about this. It's the fear of the Lord being so caught up in the rapture of that moment with him 
and of a life with him that everything else begins to fade. That was the original plan. That's the promised land. Where we go both metaphorically now in our existence with God and in reality in the life to come. But we wanted to live independent of God. Humanity did. And so we fell from grace. They call this the fall. And the fall infected every part of the human experience. And it brought us into the land of slavery, which of course is the self-centered existence. This story is found not in Genesis 1 and 2. It's found as early as Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the Bible. We decided to live our lives without him at the center, and in doing that, we cut ourselves off from the most important relationship that the human creature needs. And as a result of our rebellion, the world broke. Very quickly, we find the first couple, Adam and Eve, turning on each other. Marriage itself begins to degrade. Then we find Cain and Abel, Cain killing Abel, turning on his own brother, hurting our siblings. As you follow the story after Genesis 3 and 4 and 5, and you go all the way through Genesis, another dozen chapters, and all you will begin to see is the disintegration of our culture. We participated in the collapse of our civilization. And now sickness and abuse and neglect became our normal experience. Loneliness and frustration marked every relationship. In effect, we ended up in slavery. And we end up serving the very things that we thought would save us from decline. This is what happened to the Israelites. How is it that they found themselves in the land of slavery? Well, they had turned to the nation of Egypt because they needed help. And when they went to Egypt, they went there with, with great hopes that they would become a great nation, which of course they did numerically, but they found themselves enslaved by the very ones who were supposed to help them. And this happens to us as well, and it's a fierce irony because we serve the very things we thought that would save us from decline. And so we get into our careers and we think it's going to be our careers. That's what's going to save us, get us out of the land of slavery. Then we become victims to our own pursuits. We experience an, another type of slavery even in the midst of pursuing the things that we thought would get us out, like relationships or some habits that we thought would bring us a little bit of pleasure. Now they begin to feel more like bondage, addictions and failing marriages and struggling kids and financial woes. And we look around and we say, what happened? How am I stuck now in the land of slavery? Something is wrong with the world. It feels broken. One of my uh, favorite ads of all time on Craigslist. Here it is. White gold engagement ring for sale. The ad read, like new condition, however, last worn by Satan herself. <laughs> ring may be cursed as it tends to leave a path of destruction behind it. Possible events associated with this ring include, but are not limited to damage to house, Vehicle, heart, and swarms of locusts. The world is broken. We are broken. We needed help. We needed someone who would save us. 
And that brings us back into our text because God actually saves his people from slavery and restores them to the promised land. 1500 1500 BC, so 3,500 years ago, God raises up Moses. And you remember the story. His name means to draw out because he was drawn out of the Nile. Remember the Egyptians were killing off the babies of, of the Israelites, the male babies? And this is a horrible time in Israelite history. Moses means to draw out, but it wasn't just that he was being drawn out of the, the Nile. He was going to draw his people out of slavery. And he does this with an epic battle against Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. All of those plagues, you've seen the movie, right? The Heston, the whole the tablets, the, not, the, not the one with the 15, the 10 commandments, but the ones with the, you, you know the one, right? It's the big one, it's the epic one, it's a great one, you should watch it. Anyway, it's, and it's, it's really cool because you get to see all of these plagues But Pharaoh and the people, they continue to harden their hearts and they continue to say, no, we're not going to let the Israelites go. We're not going to give them up. We're not going to free free them and lose the the labor of of these slaves. We won't do it. They kept hardening their hearts until ultimately God said, one last plague and I'm going to break their spirits. And they'll let you out. In fact, they'll drive you out of slavery. And it was the plague of the firstborn. God said, that a destroying angel was going to go over the whole of the land and every single home would lose their firstborn. They would die in this most horrific plague, including over the land of Israel. The Israelites were given very specific instructions on how to protect themselves from the avenging angel. They had to have a ceremony. They had to bring in a spotless lamb and they had to kill this lamb And they had to take the blood of this innocent animal and they had to spread it on the doorposts of their house. They had to cover their homes with the blood of this lamb. As if to say, I'm going to take the firstborn and exchange the life of my firstborn for the life of this spotless lamb. And this spotless lamb ought to die in place of my child. That will be my sacrifice. Instead, God, please honor this exchange. Don't take my firstborn. Take, instead, take this lamb. Which, of course, they did. And in that day, the avenging angel passed over the nation of Israel. And not a single life was lost. That's the beginning. That's the origin of the Passover. And that's what Moses did. Then they went into the wilderness where they would learn dependence on God, but it wasn't up to Moses to bring them into the promised land. That was left to another, Joshua, whose Hebrew name is Yeshua, which means God saves. And how does God save them? He saves them out of the wilderness and into the land flowing with milk and honey, into the new Eden, into the promised land. He brings them into that new land because that's how God saves This is an amazing story throughout the the history of the Israelites. But for us, it's very important because the name Joshua, God saves, is the Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament of the Greek name Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus' name means God saves. He is Yeshua. He's the next Joshua. He's, in fact, the true Joshua. And that Joshua has an even better promise for us. We go back into our story in Joshua 24, 15, and here's what Joshua said. He said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So God draws them out of slavery. But of course, we know that it's through the sacrifice of Jesus. When John the Baptist came on the scene and Jesus comes up over the hill and he comes over to John and John points to Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's going back to the Passover and he's saying Jesus is actually the Passover Lamb. The Passover lamb is what we need now to take the blood of Jesus and put his blood over the doorposts of our lives to cover us so that the avenging angel will not judge us for our sin and our rebellion. And of course, Jesus does this as Joshua, as the one who delivers us into that promised land through the the life. It's not just about the death of Jesus. It's about his resurrection and the guarantee of life. He's going to deliver us from the fear of death, from slavery to our sin. He's going to bring us into that promised land. That's the hope that we have in him. And when we celebrate the communion, we are recognizing that God has drawn us out of slavery to sin and death by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, his son, Jesus. And now you see the importance of it, right? It was the plague on the firstborn. But it isn't our firstborn that needs to suffer for our sin. But it was going to be a firstborn. What was Jesus later called? The son of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You see, someone's firstborn was going to pay for the human rebellion, And it was the very son of God in exchange for us so that we could enter into the promised land. And that's what, when when we come to the Lord's table, you realize that that when when they first, they had the first Eucharist, when they had the first Lord's table, when 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 the Christians did the first communion, when Jesus reinterpreted all the elements, they were celebrating the Passover meal. It was the Jewish Passover that they were working through. Our communion ceremony is a reenactment of their Passover meal given to us by Jesus himself. And in those moments, he took those elements and he says, everyone, it was about me. It was about my work and my sacrifice as the lamb of God. And it was about my blood over the doorposts of your house. And if you want to be rescued from your slavery and brought back into the promised land, the presence of God, then you will do it through And today we get to celebrate this group of kids who are declaring that Jesus Christ is the center of their lives. In whatever way they can at their age and the best way that we can equip them to do it, that's what they're doing. It's it's another step in their spiritual journey. Trying to get them to this point in this day, in that age. And sometimes, you know, we wonder about moments like this. These are memorial moments. Joshua would set them up. He would set up a memorial stone and he would say, this stone is so that we will forever remember what we promised. And that's what this day represents. It's a day that we get to point back to for the rest of their lives and say, this was a significant high water mark in your spiritual journey where you, even as a young child said, I am going to put Christ at the center of it all. I'm going to let him be at the center of my existence. And I can understand why we would want to do this kind of a thing for our kids. I mean, why would we not? We don't want them to be living in the self-centered kinds of way. We want them to be God-centered. We want them to be, be raised up in the knowledge that they can have forgiveness of sins and they don't have to spend an eternity separated from God or in slavery to sin, but they can be brought into the promised land. Of course we would want that from our kids, but 
But that's not what Joshua said. Joshua said, I'm going to make sure my kids do this. What did Joshua say? He said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. See, it can't just be about your kids. No matter what it is that we can teach them and no matter what it is they can learn on their own, the most powerful example of this is going to be in your lives. They're going to see it and they're going to take your modeling of what it means to live the God-centered life. They're going to look to you for how to do it. When Joshua is told the Israelites to choose this day, I think that was for all of us. Choose this day whom you will serve. Is it the gods that you grew up with? Is it the gods of the life before? Is it the gods that you were told that you had to, had to follow? Was it the angry God? Was it the, the Santa God who gives you whatever it is you want and you don't have to wrestle with? Do you even know who this God is? Choose this day whom you will serve. It's this day. And every one of us has that opportunity at every given moment to either accept this gift and this promise or to reject it. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm asking that you would help each person here to wrestle with the reality of your word, the promises and the truth. I'm asking, Lord, that you would help us to come to grips with who we are in Christ, to feel the, the power of that presence, Lord, in us. And I pray that each person here, Lord, would be faced with this challenge and this decision moment to choose this day whom they will serve. And I pray, Lord, that for their own sakes and for the sakes of the children and the next generation, I pray, Lord, that they would choose you to live God-centered in the sacrifice and in the power of Christ, Lord. That's what we want. That's our longing. That's our desire, Father. Make that increasingly true of each and every one of us. Amen.